I want to take a minute to tell you about Federal Access. Federal Access is our coaching and training platform that we develop for government contractors. The resources in Federal Access have helped our clients win over $13.6 billion in government contracts. When you become a member, you're going to get access to hundreds of documents, templates, training videos, on-demand webinars, and you get SME support from me. So if you have a question, you can email me directly anytime. Here's a special offer for Game Changers listeners. Visit federal-access.com forward slash Game Changers today and get started for just $29. That's federal-access.com forward slash Game Changers to get started for just $29. Now let's get into this episode. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now your hosts, Josh and Mike. Hey everybody, Mike Lejeune here with Game Changers for Government Contractors. And I've got Mark Hijar on here today, and we're going to be talking about teaming, but from the bigs perspective or large SI perspective versus the smalls perspective, so that all of our smaller companies can get a good idea of what it's like to be on the other side of the coin here. So Mark, before we get started, why don't you take a moment to tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do? My name is Mark Hijar. I'm the founder of ProcureLinks. We're a consulting firm that helps companies with the contractor purchasing system review process or CPSR process. Got my start in government contracting almost 20 years ago. I ended my time working directly for contractors as corporate counsel for a large publicly traded government contractor and then shifted into consulting support. And now the average revenue of my clients is over a billion dollars. Most of the clients I work with are multi, multi-billion dollar large companies who do a lot of teaming and work under a lot of IDIQ type agreements. I also specialize in supply chain, work a lot with how contractors look at their supply chain, how they document it, and what they expect from their supply chain. So that's basically my job every day. Great stuff, Mark. There, It's very interesting because a lot of times the people that we have on here primarily work in the small business sector, usually on the small business side. So it's really great to have somebody who has that perspective of those billion dollar companies. And you know, when you and I were talking, one of the things that interested me was just understanding a little bit about what it's like when a small approaches a large to team. You and I talked a little bit, you have a similar approach on how they need to find an opportunity and have some value and some intel and all those kind of things. But tell me from your perspective, working on the large side, what is it like to be a large being approached by smalls? And when I say smalls, it could be anywhere from brand new to hundred million dollars. That's still small to them. How does it feel to be those companies being approached by people all the time? What's it like for that? What it's like. I think that small businesses are always very enthusiastic. They're always very excited. I would say the biggest trip up I see is that that excitement causes them to skip over steps um, Mm. and some of the steps they don't even know. I think a lot of times, and this is true of large businesses as well, the regulations that we work under are not the easiest things to understand. And there's a lot of them. Mm. So I think the biggest thing that hampers small businesses when they engage with large is that a lot of times large speak a language that the smalls are not necessarily used to speaking or even hearing. That language obviously has a lot of acronyms in it they've never heard before. There's a lot 
regulatory requirements that they don't know about. And when those intersect with anticipated performance, it can cause some issues for smalls. Larges as well, but definitely for smalls who sometimes don't even know if the large is really making sense. Like, right. wait, I don't even, does that even a thing? I don't, you know, so I think there's often, the other thing I see that kind of leads into the second thing I see with small businesses is that there's often a level of mistrust of large businesses, mm. which I think sometimes is well-founded and sometimes is more kind of urban legendy. There's a fear that once they get involved with the large, it's only a matter of time before they get swallowed up, their work gets taken, their people get taken and their business is going to fall apart. So I think there's kind of a zero to 120 approach. Either they're very enthusiastic and can't wait to get started, or they have a lot of questions and come in almost, what would I say, kind of suspiciously. Yeah. Um, so I've seen I've seen both ends. Yeah. So I, there's a lot of good stuff in, in that real quick uh, explanation there. Talk to me a little bit about some of the steps. What do you see as the common steps of maybe what it should be, as well as maybe which ones are usually skipped over? That's a great question. I think the biggest thing that I think small businesses do not consider is what type of services or support they're offering. What I mean by that is, again, small businesses don't know about this a lot of times, but for example, with the new IDIQs coming up, almost all of them now, whether you're talking about GSA, Astro, Polaris, the recent kind of kerfluffle that was CIOSP4, Things like purchasing systems, estimating systems are becoming big evaluation criteria during IDIQ reviews. Those systems, those business systems carry with them documentation responsibilities. As a result, small businesses don't know that they can become a lot more attractive to a large business if they sell themselves the right way. So what I mean by that is, do you have something specialized that you're offering? Do you have incumbent work that you're bringing to the vehicle? Are you offering services or components on a commercial basis? That's something that's important to note. All of these things that are checkboxes during the documentation and evaluation process, I think a lot of small businesses don't know how much they can help themselves by helping the primes document those things. When they come to the effort, they just go, hey, we're a great small business and the customers love us and this and that, not realizing that there are many different people you have to talk to along your journey. The capture manager that reaches out to you is only the first person you're going to talk to during your hopefully long journey in the government contracting process. You're going to have to talk to program managers. You're going to have to talk to pricing people. You're going to have to talk to proposal managers. You're going to have to talk to subcontract managers. And that's where things can get a little sticky, right? The length of time it takes to get an agreement done, whether it be a teaming or a subcontract agreement, shortens expeditiously if the subcontractor knows how to participate. And I think a lot of small businesses either don't have the resources or the experience to participate effectively. And I think that does hamper relationships along the way. I've seen a lot of times when small business will come in, very excited, work to be done. And then when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of it, responding to regulations, responding to document requests, they stumble and they stutter. Then they get frustrated. And then Mm -hmm. it becomes, oh, you're just trying to take this away from me or you're just trying to do this. And, And again, I understand this. I mean, you know, a lot of times when you're coming to these larges, you're basically putting your corporate life in their hands in a lot of ways. Right. And so I totally understand the hesitancy and the the mild healthy paranoia that comes with that. I think a lot of small businesses don't realize, though, that just because one person likes you doesn't mean that you're done for the rest of the process. And I think that is something that does unnecessarily hamper small businesses as they move through the government contracting process, at least initially. Yeah, those are really good points. And I think a lot of people do see the red tape, if you will, to use that word, as just a way to put me off, push me back, slow this down. And they don't realize how agile they are as a small business 
business versus the big company that it really is like trying to steer a cruise ship where you can make very small changes at that level. And sometimes they just get frustrated and want to be like, well, hey, let me talk to the vice president of this division. Oh, the one with 25,000 employees under there? you know, or whatever, like yeah. they're, they're not, that's not who you need to be talking to. You need to be going through this process and doing all these types of things. We recently signed on a, a multi-billion dollar company and even going through their system to get in their billing, it was like pages mm-hmm. and pages of documents. We had a signed contract and then it was weeks of, you need to talk to this person and that person and sign this agreement, upload this document here and upload that document there. And we had a signed contract. So we weren't frustrated. Mm-hmm. But we understood because we've come from that space that that's just what has to happen. That's the way they operate. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's good to hear that from a smallest perspective to hear they're not trying to do anything to you. It's just their process, really. You know, that's the big part of it. You know, I see a lot of people that come in and think, well, my value is my status. That's number one. We see a lot of that. And we try to stop people and say, that's not your value. It's more along the lines of, of what you're talking here. But I think it enhances your your value to be able to understand their process, their regulations, their language, those things that you're talking about here. That's something I don't know if you can talk about a little bit when it comes to the regulation side. You mentioned that a couple of times in documents. What's mm-hmm. maybe one or two things that if I saw that as a small, I'd be like, really? Or like, maybe I should educate myself on prior to working and teaming with a large so that when I see that, I understand it. I would say the biggest thing that I think small businesses probably misunderstand or have a hard time understanding are the rules surrounding excessive pass-through. Whenever you're large, when your prime is working under a cost-reimbursable type contract, cost plus fixed fee, cost plus incentive fee, any of those, there are regulations that apply to that performance that have to do with the amount that can be subcontracted over the life of that contract. And it's called excessive pass-through. It is 52-215-22, which is what kicks in during the proposal phase, and then 23 kicks in during performance. And what that regulation said is that the prime contractor, if they subcontract more than 70% of the total performance, they have to go get a mother may I permission from the contracting officer to do that. When those regulations are in play, the prime contractor must retain at least 30% of the work or else that additional flowdown could be considered an excessive pass-through. In other words, why are you here prime if you're not doing any work? That's what the reg says. So if you're subcontracting out more than 70% of the work, then the prime has to go and show their value and say why they should still be the prime. A lot of times prime contractors will work their butts off to keep out of that situation because they don't want their contracting officer, especially on a large IDIQ, to think they're not doing anything. They will work as hard as possible to retain that 30% ownership, which I've seen frustrate small businesses and they think it's a whole lot of fluff and smoke, but it's an actual regulation that applies. Now, the catch is, and this is something that your listeners should know, is that that pass-through regulation applies to the life cycle contract forms. So it does not apply on a task order by task order basis. So keeping what I said in mind, if your prime is saying on a task order basis that they cannot subcontract contract more than 70%, that may or may not be true. On a large multi-billion dollar IDIQ, if you're working under a $10 million task order and your prime's trying to tell you that, well, I can only subcontract no more than $7 million to you, that may or may not be true. Ask some more questions, right? Because mm. that 70% applies to life cycle contract performance. Not that task orders are not considered contracts. They're considered releases under prime contracts. So whenever anything applies to the prime contract, it applies at the prime contract level. So again, mm. while a prime contractor might be worried about that, they might themselves misunderstand. 
and they might think it applies. That's the other thing I'd like to throw out there is don't assume that large businesses are experts in these regulations, right? Mm. There's a reason why people like me have jobs. And it's because even the auditing agencies that interpret these regs for a living don't always understand these regulations, which is another reason why I have a job. I think one thing I do see happen is that small businesses walk in and they think that they walk into like a general dynamic. So they walk into a CACI and they go, oh, these guys know exactly what's going on. In a lot of cases they do, but on an individual basis, there might be some misunderstandings, sometimes understandable about how the regs apply. So what I would suggest is don't feel bad about asking more questions about these kind of requirements, about digging in a little bit. Can you tell me which regulation that is? I'd like to read it. That's one thing I would say to your listeners too, is that read the regs, right? They're there. And if you don't understand something, bring it up. There's nothing wrong with asking good natured and well-founded questions about what's going on. The biggest thing though, that I would say that small businesses can do to help themselves and to help the primes during the process, support your pricing. Now, what I mean by that is not that I got this really cool dude who's going to be your key personnel. And so they're worth every penny. That is not justifying your pricing from a regulatory perspective. One of the clauses that I think is really important for small businesses to read is 154041. And that is proposal evaluation. These are the steps that the government and prime contractors take when they're evaluating the pricing proposed by their suppliers. That clause has steps in it that you have to go through to evaluate a proposal before you can determine it fair and reasonable and accept it for work. One of the things I, I like to tell small businesses is read the reg. I also tell large businesses this because the government has the same feedback. You might be shocked, you might not, by how many large businesses submit price proposals and cost proposals that really don't have any reasoning or backup in them. It's just a bunch of numbers and then a bunch of information about how they're the 100 plus places to work in 2021. Government doesn't care about that, right? What they care about is substantiation of rates, explanation of costs, and determinations of fairness and reasonableness when it's handed to the government. What the government likes is when you do their work for them. Mm. If you make the government do their work, they're like you a lot less. Same goes for your prime contractors. The more of the questions they need to answer that you can answer for them, the better supplier you are, the better subcontractor you are, and the more they're going to want to use you, especially when it comes to labor rate. Labor rates in particular, explain your work, right? Show your work, right? It's just like math class. And I know we don't, we all didn't like being in math class, but I, hey, I was an English lit major and a lawyer, so I'm not the biggest math person, mm-hmm. but I will tell you that the more you can support your rates with regulatory support, here's how I competed these suppliers. Here's how my independent estimate was built. Here is an invoice from a rate that I submitted two weeks ago to a customer that was that was accepted for payment. These kind of things are the things that check off boxes on a regulatory basis and on the government side too. The government has a big checklist that you can download about how DCAA evaluates proposals. Most of it, like three pages of it, has to do with subcontractor pricing. Look at those questions. What is the government going to ask your prime? If you want to defend your rate, if you want that rate to stay where it is, you need to be able to defend it. You can't submit it and think, oh, I'm going to let the government. If you let the government figure out what your price should be, it's going to be less than what you gave them, right, period. Right. period. They're never going to give you more money, right? Never is the government giving something, someone more money than they asked for, right? So keep that in mind. Your only way to going is down. Right. So work that into your rate and be able to defend it. If you can defend it, then your prime can defend it. And your prime is going to be much more willing to take a chance submitting it. And I think that's the biggest thing that a small business can do to help out their prime. That's really good. I had several questions based on what you just said, but I know I don't have time for all of them. But one of them is you mentioned about the task areas. One of the things that we've always advised our clients whenever possible, don't sign a teaming agreement based on percentage of work. Try to pick out a task area or two or Something specific. Do you have some recommendations on number one, how to talk to the large about that? And number Mm -hmm. two, maybe what you should ask for. Since you've been a lawyer, you've reviewed a lot of these agreements. What should the smalls be asking for in some of these agreements in order to guarantee them something? 
let me put out one thing, and this is going to maybe freak some people out a little bit, but this has been true for decades and decades. Teaming agreements are not the most legally enforceable documents, okay? So especially when you're dealing with somebody who's working under the laws of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Virginia a couple of years ago, four or five years ago maybe, reaffirmed a decision that said that teaming agreements that do not include consideration are not enforceable in a court of law. So what that means is that if in the teaming agreement phase, you are not giving something and getting something, if you're just saying, okay, for this teaming agreement, which is what they all say, we're going to execute a subcontract under which we'll do work. Most courts interpret that as an agreement to agree, which means much like an MOU, right? It's mm-hmm. a it's a, it's a a handshake in writing. That doesn't mean teaming agreements are worthless by any means. But what it does mean is that if you're counting on suing under a teaming agreement, you're not going to get very far. What it does mean, though, is that if the company is willing to sign off on that engagement, it means that you've got a worthwhile piece of paper to use internally during discussions and during negotiations. Why I say that is because the most important thing, and I'm sure you you say this to your listeners and your clients, is that relationship building is the most important thing when you're a small business trying to get into a large team. Building those relationships all the way down the line. Building your relationship capture manager, the proposal team, the pricing team, the eventual project or program manager, and the contract staff. These are the people you need to build relationships with. And it might sound exhausting, and it kind of is, but that's why everybody can't do it. You need to make sure that you have a throughput because teaming agreements can be thrown to the side. Now, Large businesses don't like doing it because it gives them a bad name in the industry and people talk, right? So it's not as if, I'm not saying that you sign a teaming agreement, it's worthless. What I am saying though, is that don't feel like this is your get out of jail free, golden ticket, whatever. It's a very important step and it's a traditional step and is one that is definitely needed to participate in a proposal. To your point, move past that, right? It's just a step in the process. Now, to your earlier point, I completely agree. Go after a functional area. If you can, go after specific work. The reason why work share is hard and the reason why it doesn't always work is because things change, right? No IDIQ is the same when you bid on it as it is when you start performing. Work comes in, contracts get collapsed, work gets moved, work gets moved for contractors sometimes. If you've got work on a different vehicle, you can find a way to that vehicle. Things change all the time. New team members are being added all the time too, which is why, going back to your earlier point, relying solely on your classification is not a good road to go down when you're trying to guarantee work because there's more of you, mm-hmm. more of you out there, right? So if they need to make their numbers over a five-year agreement, they're going to find more service-disabled veterans and small businesses. They're going to find more hubs and businesses that they need to. What you need to do is to show value, like objective value. And that, to your point, is by showing capabilities and experience in functional areas of the actual contract. A lot of these IDIQs have a lot of functional areas, like Seaport E, that's now Seaport, I think, X, has like 22 different functional areas in there, right? That's one of the bigger, messier ones. But all of these, Alliant, Oasis, any IT services contract, you can do almost anything under them, other than like maybe build a building. And sometimes you can do that too. Focusing on those functional areas that most closely align with your current capability. Again, not stuff you're planning on doing, not stuff you've gotten the pipeline to, to start working on in 18 months. And oh, by the way, by the time the prime contract gets awarded, we should be doing that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your core capabilities that you're doing right now, that you've got CPARs for, that you've got past performance for, that you've got customers in a PMO who know your name that you do. That's the stuff you need to key on and focus on those functional areas because the work in those functional areas is much more limited than, you know, it might sound great to get 25% of the work on a five billion dollar agreement but your prime contractor is not going to get all five billion of those dollars right Right. and there's 20 30 40 other subs on the team when you get that 25 percent work share you should poke at that a bit don't be afraid to poke at work share realistic work share is much better than an imaginary work share if you're really only going to get five percent figure out the numbers, right? And figure out what their numbers are. That's another question. I don't see small businesses asking primes. What do you think you're going to do under this prime contract? What is 10%? 10%, but it's not at the ceiling. 
You're not going to win the ceiling. There's going to be a hundred other prime. What are you going to do on this contract? What does 10% look like, right? And if they can't answer that question, then don't agree to it. Because if they don't know what 10% looks like, it, it's a worthless number. Functional areas, exactly. It's core capabilities. And if you can bring work to the vehicle, that's how you bring work. Kill what you eat, right? Or eat what you kill, mm -hmm. right? That's really what primes want. They want hunters. They don't want gatherers. They want people who are going to go out there and kill the woolly mammoth and drag home the carcass and let everybody eat. They don't want someone who's waiting there for the carcass to come home. Right. So that's the mindset you should be in when you're talking to your primes. Engaging in puffery, engage in sales, sales cycle. And I think that's another thing that contractors aren't used to is the fact that this is all about sales. We don't call it sales and marketing, right? Because our indirect cost pools don't support sales and marketing charges. So we call it bid and propose. It's the same process though. You got to sell yourself, right? You got to sell yourself up and down the chain and you got to show value. A lot of small businesses have a lot of value. They just have to be more confident about it. And it's not bad to be aggressive about it as long as you're not stepping on toes along the way. Again, remember, just because you made a friend at capture level doesn't mean that that friendship is going to carry all the way through the life of the prime contract because I think right. you made the earlier point, they're going to walk away. Capture managers in particular, they got a lot of stuff in their pipeline. And as soon as that proposal gets submitted, they're probably going to lose your number. Not on purpose, but they're because on to they the next thing. thing. Yep, on to the next On to the next one, right? As you move through the process, remember, you got to make new friends. Yep. You, you got to you gotta keep making friends along the way. And again, I don't mean friends like you go out and have drinks with them, but I mean people that don't roll their eyes when they see your email come through. You know, those are the people you want to have, you know, like, ugh, Mark's emailing me again. What the, what now? That's yeah. not the vibe you want with your prime. It's not that hard to avoid that. One of the things I do caution though is don't scare your contracts people. Scared contracts people act in fear. And when you act in fear, it's fight or flight. So either they're going to lay down and, and show their bellies and just accept whatever the prime tells them, or they're going to fight tooth and nail potentially on issues that don't really matter to you. So that's something mm -hmm. else too. Again, it's supposed to be a negotiation. You're supposed to be on the same team. If you've got a real fire and brimstone kind of contract person that gets in there and is, is your pit bull and gets everything done, that might not be the person you want having interactions with your prime. Maybe it is. Maybe you want to keep them off to the side if things go sideways. Then yeah. you bring in your pit bull, right? But you might not want your pit bull. And I used to be the pit bull for my company. So I'm not downgrading the pit bull. I, I may or may not own a Harrier dog. What I'm saying though, is that you don't want to introduce people to growling and barking the first time they meet you. So right. that's just, you know, another thing to keep in mind. Again, don't let that paranoia get away from you and say, well, they're going to screw us at some point. So let's just get in there and screw them first. That is not the way to build a teaming relationship. That's really good. We're uh, sort of running out of time, but there's a couple of questions I definitely want to hit on before we go. One sure. is you mentioned the language and people not knowing the language of the prime. Can you give us just a couple of examples of the language of the prime? I know you kind of been talking about it indirectly sure. throughout this, but I'm just wondering if there's a couple that you can give us. You want like regulatory language or stuff that they usually say during the proposal process that you should look out for? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that you should probably know about if you're small, if you're lucky enough to get a big proposal in or to get a big ceiling, you're probably going to have to talk about a couple of regs, in particular, truthful cost and pricing. So truthful cost and pricing is one that I see subcontractors get very confused about, and I understand why. Truthful cost and pricing used to be called TINA. The regulations that apply, 52.215.12 is during proposal, 52.215.13 is during execution and performance. And those are the ones that lead to what we call false claim, right? You hear about False Claims Act and you hear about defective pricing, that's all surrounding this truthful cost and pricing concept. And what the concept is, is that when you bid and you're bidding on a cost reimbursable contract, you as the sub are, and this is potentially how it comes up, if you are not bidding on a commercial or a competitive basis and you are getting an award that exceeds $2 million, you might have to start certifying things, signing your name to things about your proposal. I attest this is true, correct, and accurate. I'm not lying, doing all this stuff. And a lot of times I see, I used to see when subs sign those and they'd be like, what am I signing? What is, do you think I'm going to lie? Who wants to know this? 
this. It's all regulatory. This is why it's important to know if you're a commercial product. If you're commercial, you're exempted out of stuff like that. You don't have to comply with it. You don't even have to comply with it. You'd be like, nope, don't have to sign it. I'm, I'm commercial. That's why it's important to know what kind of services you're providing, what kind of products you're providing. Because if they are commercial, things like cost accounting standards will never apply. Truthful cost of pricing won't apply. As you get bigger, small business subcontracting plans won't apply. Things like that. That's one thing. You know, getting that certificate of current cost or pricing. That's one thing. Does that mean the government's going to audit me? Potentially, it does. It does mean the government might audit. It does. You should know that. If you're over $2 million and you got to sign your name to that little the little cert, you're probably going to get a call from DCAA about your proposal. So be ready for it. You know, knowing that and knowing that your prime can't always do a lot about that is important, right? Hey, get them off of me. The only way I can get them off of you is if I do the cost analysis for you. You don't want that. So right. that's, one, that's one thing I would say. Some of the language that your primes are going to speak a lot about sharpening your pencils and uh, we're all in this together. We're all, all got to take a big 10% cut. These are the times where you need to be able to defend your pricing because what will happen is your prime will get word from someone, either industry or even the government sometimes saying, you got to drop your price. It even happens on competitive proposals. When there's a down select, they get those 20 proposals, they get down to the four or five. Then the government starts to talk to the primes and say, okay, what can you do? Okay, you're in the range, but we need to get you guys down for budget purposes. We need you to find 10% to cut. What primes will do is they will flow that 10%, maybe a little extra change down to their entire supply chain. Say, okay, everybody sharpen your pencils. We got a 10%, 15% cut coming. Right now, keep in mind though, that a 15% cut across the board really mean it comes from everybody. It means it comes from the proposal as a whole. And your prime has submitted an enormous proposal of which you are a small but important part. Does your small but important part need to be part of that 15%? Or maybe your small and important part should be 5%. Maybe it should be zero. Why or why not? Those kind of questions, if you can answer them, will help you during the process. Because again, your prime could come back and say, you know what? I can't do 15% or 10% because we're already at bare minimum. Here's our explanation. Here's where we got our pricing. These are incumbents. They're doing this work. They're not escalating their rates for you, blah, 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 blah. Those are the questions you have to answer though when the government comes back and starts negotiating with you. When your prime comes in and says, let's sharpen our pencils, guys. We got to cut everything by 10%. That's the easy way out for everyone. But is it the right way out? Mm. You don't want to have to renegotiate at the task level. You don't want to have to come back to the government and say, oh, by the way, I know our rates are this, but they're going to have to be 10% more for this task. It's not a great way to win task order. What's best is to come in where you think you're going to be. Help your primes do that. They might come in and say they got to cut 10%, but it doesn't have to come from you necessarily. But if you can't explain your pricing, expect to get that 10% notice. Why wouldn't they? If you can't tell me why your rates are good, then I have to assume this is part of the 10% I have to cut. Again, your ability to hear things coming down the road and then knowing what they need, that 10% means reductions are required unless you can explain yourself. That's really, mm. so the government never says that last part. They never yeah, say the last yeah. part of, unless you can explain yourself, cut 10%. They'll just say cut 10% and then say, and by the way, the negotiation clauses, which are 15406, one through three, those clauses do not require downward negotiation for a negotiation to be successful. What they require is for any price or cost that was not determined fair and reasonable to be negotiated. It have to end in a reduction. But it has to end with a determination of fairness and reasonableness. That's why if you can support your pricing, you can get out of a downward adjustment potentially. Because all they have to do is to be able to say it's fair and reasonable. That's how the negotiation ends. There is no requirement that a downward adjustment must be achieved. That's another important thing that takes back and forth. That right. takes knowledge. It takes narrative. And it takes a little bit of gumption. These are things that if you can prime your prime up front, they can answer those questions when that result comes in. And maybe you won't be part of that 10%. Yeah, that's really good advice. I mean, everything you've talked about today, I, I could probably ask you a hundred more questions about all this type of stuff. It's so interesting to me. And I know as a small they're always trying to get with these primes and work with them. And I think you've talked about a lot of the frustrations from both sides today. It's really, really good stuff. Do you have any final thoughts for listeners to kind of you know wrap all this up? I think that, um, and I think you've touched on it quite a bit, which is primes got a job to do. And 
and that just remember S rolls downhill. If they're dealing with a hard customer, expect things to be tense. The best way to be a good team member and to participate is to help them answer the questions that you know the government's going to ask them. And you know the government's going to ask them about their pricing. You know that, right? Government mm-hmm. almost never accepts a proposal without negotiating. Very, very, very rare. Right? Even in sole source proposals, and this is something I don't know if small businesses realize, even when a prime has the work wire, it is coming to them, there is no competition, it is all theirs, their name's on it. That does not mean that the government accepts their pricing when it's submitted by any means. As a matter of fact, the negotiations get even more intense when there's no competition. I think subcontractors, small businesses in particular, are well served understanding that there are a lot of technical hard questions that need to be answered. And the more they can do that, the better a team member they'll be seen as and the more they'll want to be used. Because again, think about it. No matter what you do, if you're good at defending your rates and you're good at defending your pricing and you're good at narrating what you do, they're going to probably have a spot for you somewhere because you can help them write their proposal. You can help them envision what needs to be done and you can help them explain them. And this is something else to understand. The government does prize the input of small businesses. They do. They're forced to, if nothing else. If your prime can point and say, you really want to take a rate away from that small business that's been doing this work for five years and has already been doing the work in that they pay good people based on this, you you want me to go tell that small business that they have to cut 10%, maybe fire people. Are you sure you want me to do that? Is that what you want me to do, DOD? That's a hard question for them to answer. And this is why it's good to get your backup because the next question will be, well, how do I know that that's the rate? And that's when they bring in your backup and say, here it is. Here's all their stuff. So again, the more you can help them, you can help them use you as a way to buttress against government requirements and requests, the more prize of a team member you make yourself. That's such good advice. And I think if people walk away from anything from this podcast, one of the things they're going to take away is how much smarter they need to get about pricing. Because a lot of people are really good when it comes to the services, the products, all of those things. But when you get down to pricing, I often see the deer in the headlights look. And they'll mm-hmm. they'll send me a spreadsheet and go, well, it costs this much per hour. You know, that's what I'm paying the person. And here's my rate for them. And I'm like, what about the other 12 things that need to be in your spreadsheet? And they're like, what 12 things? <laughs> like most people don't know what all goes into actually getting that rate. And I think most people submit low rates because they're not educated on that. So they're mm-hmm. leaving a lot of money on the table there because of that one issue. I think that's one of the big ones. You know, my other big one here is being able to speak the language. I think that's huge. And just understanding what certain things mean when they're coming down the pike and and stuff like that. A lot of really great advice. I really thank you for coming on and talking about this stuff. I'm sure we could do five more podcasts on this one topic alone. So thank you for taking the time. I want to let folks know how they can reach you. So if somebody has questions or anything like that, what's the best way to reach you? Is it website, LinkedIn, something along those lines? And we can put all the contact information in the podcast, but what's the best way to reach you if they have questions. You can just send me an email, Mark, M-A-R-K at ProcureLinks, ProcureLinx.com. Okay. And that's really the easiest way to get me. Okay. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure that is included in the description of the podcast. And uh, again, thanks, Mark. Thanks for coming on today and talking about this. I think it's been really, really helpful. Oh, thanks for having me on. Could be happier to help. Thanks for listening to Game Changers for Government Contractors. For a full list of episodes and other resources, be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com slash gamechangers.